Hello, and welcome to Positively Dreadful with me, your host, Brian Boitler. There's no way around the fact that it's been a very bad few weeks, and even few years, for gun violence and the proliferation of firearms in America. Most recently, there were the massacres at Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Texas, and at the grocery store in Buffalo, New York's black community. Those events overshadowed a bunch of smaller mass shootings like the one in Highland Park, Illinois on the 4th of July. And you can think of all of them as outgrowths of a pandemic-era surge in gun sales, which was, in turn, facilitated by the radical jurisprudence of the Supreme Court over many, many years. So those are just the background conditions for the movement against gun violence. It's that even when there's good news on the gun front, it's usually in a broader context of serious setbacks. Taking just one example, President Biden recently signed a modest but perfectly fine gun regulation bill into law. It's the first such bill in decades. No poison pills, really. Just a kind of one foot in front of the other improvement of federal law. But Congress passed that bill in the immediate, immediate aftermath of the Supreme Court literally just inventing a constitutional right to carry concealed weapons. Like, I think, I think literally on the same day. And I know it feels like the sporting thing to do is celebrate the passage of that bill as the kind of cracking of the dam of GOP opposition to gun control. But honestly, if you gave me a choice between the new status quo or just going back to where things were in early June before the Supreme Court decision, I'd go back in a heartbeat. If you want me to get really game theory-ish on you, I think I can make a pretty decent case that the bipartisan gun law is actually kind of counterproductive. You can tell one story about it where these horrible killings made it impossible for Republicans to continue blocking all reforms, and this is the sort of turning of the tide. But another version of the same story is the GOP has finally seized control of the courts. And so it's now sort of free to play reasonable by voting for incremental gun measures, knowing that their judges and their justices will do their dirty work for them from the bench and assure that guns keep proliferating through society. So that's all fairly discouraging. Ever since the early part of the last decade, starting around the Gabby Gifford shooting and then the massacre in Newtown, the anti-gun violence movement has organized itself around the end goal of legislating our way to a safer, freer country, basically by capturing the high ground. Common sense gun reforms, universal background checks, which poll at 90%. But that whole approach has been hobbled by the filibuster and now by a Supreme Court that would almost certainly just throw out any meaningful partisan new gun laws. Someday, hopefully, Democrats will eliminate those obstacles. But today is not that day. So what do you do if the legislative path is, for the time being at least, a dead end? One approach is to just keep pushing against the closed door. Keep voting on more bills. Keep pressuring candidates to support this or that policy idea. The sort of definition of insanity. Another, which I want to tease out a bit in this conversation, is to try to influence the way people think about guns as a staple of American life. That would mean making people who love guns maybe love them a bit less. But it would also mean reaching people who already think gun violence in the U.S. is out of control and radicalizing them. Basically, can we change hearts and minds rather than laws? And in doing so, make gun culture anathema instead of something we celebrate or something we just roll our eyes at and then forget.
How would that even work? Well, at the most basic level, it would require changing how we marshal facts about guns and the toll they take. Everyone already knows about gun crime in America. They know all about mass shootings, particularly the most wrenching ones like Columbine and Parkland. And so I figured I should talk to the person who wrote the book on those. Dave Cullen is a journalist and author with immersive knowledge of the American gun crisis, and I can't think of a better brain to pick on this topic than his. So Dave Cullen, welcome to Positively Dreadful. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me. So first question before we get into all that heavy stuff, how did you end up on the, on the sort of deep dive into mass school shootings beat? Very unintentionally and gradually. Um, just completely chance. I lived in Denver, and the day Columbine started, I didn't even think it was anything. I saw it in the local news. There was no reports of injuries. And, but just in case it was something, I got in my car and drove out there, you know, as journalists do. To, um, uh, I didn't even know where it was. You know, my boyfriend at the time had grown up there and gave me some possible exits, head, you know, head out Highway 6. And while driving out toward the mountains, uh, trying to, you know, figure it out, out the side of my window, I saw a helicopter circling. And I was like, holy shit. Uh, and that's the first moment I knew something really horrible was happening. And I literally just drove toward the helicopters, got off of the exit trying to line them up and drove till I hit a police barricade. And then I got out and said, which way is Columbine? He said, that way, and I ran that way. And that was the start. I had no idea my life was changing as I drove out there. And, you know, I kept thinking, you know, I got off the story so many times uh, in those first 10 or 12, 15 years. Um, about five or six or 10 times I retired from this uh, subject, but it keeps, you know, drawing me back like, like in The Godfather. I was like, uh, but seriously, um, I kept thinking I was done with it. And after Columbine, um, you know, it was later that I really got involved in the gun debate because I, I, I stayed completely out of that with a book. And I wanted to just be like a history and what happened and not get into any of the politics of it. And it was actually a Brazilian friend of mine um, years after who continually got on my case after these mass shootings. You know, I would do the gauntlet of like, you know, Anderson Cooper and all the different um, cable news shows afterward. And he said, you know, you never talk about the gun control. You never, you know, take a side on this. And I'm like, I can't. I have to be objective. And he's like, he's like, you know, you have a voice. This is really important. You have a platform. You have a position to talk about it. You have a chance and you're, 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 you know, you're shirking it. Um, and I was like, yeah, you don't understand American, you know, um, journalism. It doesn't work that way. But gradually that sunk in. I felt like I can't stay on the sidelines where, you know, kids are dying. People are dying. You know, huge numbers of people. And I gradually felt like, you know, I have to uh, do something about this and started writing more about that, researching about it and, and, and diving into it. And then, you know, I, I did the Parkland book, then I did a big piece for Vanity Fair and Gabby Giffords that I spent like a year and a half on and really got into deep. And I'm working on another big magazine story now with the history and how we got here and what's happening. So, um, you know, it's one of those things I just can't, you know, once I'm like, I'm in deep and I, there's just never I'm no getting out. I've been trying to do this book on two gay soldiers for, you know, 20 some years. And I am, but it keeps pulling me back. The, uh, the interlude about your friend who intervened with you and, uh, and encouraged you to, to be a little voice here actually answers one of the questions I had. Because I noticed that Columbine is really what happened at Columbine. And that's the book. And Parkland actually follows the children of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas past the massacre and through the formation of the March for Our Lives movement. 
And I wonder if, at a, at a general level, if you're thinking about the gun control movement in the U.S. and how it approaches its objectives has changed since you wrote Parkland. Oh, dr- drastically. Well, first of all, you know, I don't know why the media hasn't gotten the memo that it's called gun safety now. Uh, or there's a couple different names. But well, that's me too. Really? Uh, you know, the, the, the move, they've stopped using that name since 2012. Um, and you will never, you've never heard, I, I assure you, you've never heard Gabby Giffords use it or Shannon Watts or any of the Parkland kids. You will never hear any of them use the phrase gun control. But, it, it, you know, and this is part of the context I want to talk about. But about 10 years ago, the movement fundamentally changed. The last gasp of this sort of dying terrible gun control movement that is arguably the worst, you know, political movement, least successful in American history, just was finally laid to rest around the time of Sandy Hook. And a new movement arose, you know, Shannon and Gabby Giffords are the two, you know, big forces right now. They both got involved in response to Sandy Hook. Shannon started Moms Demand Action the very next day as a Facebook group in response. And Gabby started her first uh, group about two and, two and a half weeks later, which they later each merged into different things. Um, uh, Shannon's merged with Bloomberg's and is now every town for gun safety. And Giffords merged with the a law center is now Giffords Kirch. Anyway, so the whole landscape has changed since then. And, you know, when I was writing Parkland, I didn't know all this and I didn't know the impact of it. And I didn't really know until, like, earlier this year, talking to, like, the lead pollster for both of them. Um, you know, I've, I get a very different context, and we'll get to it, about, like, why the Republicans buckled. But, um, but that has been coming for a, long, for a while now, and there's really systemic reasons why and why the game has really changed. And I didn't really understand when I was writing Parkland how much it had changed because I hadn't gotten it too deeply. I, you know, I really got immersed in it with those kids. That's interesting because my my – intuition on this stuff, you know, for a lot of reasons, and and they're not all about uh, the relative success or failure of of any particular bill, is that the general approach of the gun safety movement, whatever you call it, has been to try to capture the broad center, find – Ways to talk about this issue, uh, ideas to propose around it that are super popular that, I mean, you can't really object to them because there's 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 no coercion involved. Uh, the background checks, it's like driver's licenses or whatever, right? You know, and this sort of ma- trying to seize the high ground approach has not worked because the ultimate goal of what they're what they're proposing is new legislation and with the with the sort of exception that almost proves the rule of this new gun bill that became law recently they can't actually elect members of congress in a, in great enough numbers to legislate and if they could they'd still have to contend with the court and so the the whole notion of a of a of a gun safety faction of progressive politics that's aimed at trying to, you know, pressure members of Congress to do things differently is maybe barking up the wrong tree. Yeah, I disagree. So um, there have been some very big things going on. I mean, what you're saying is, is a good characterization of it, but a part of it, but the NRA and the Republican Party joined forces pretty much with the Ronald Reagan's election in, in 1980, and they have been as one. And so 
you know, with with our system that, you know, is highly in favor of the status quo, you need 60 votes in the Senate, as long as the filibuster exists. You know, the Republican Party, if it stands its ground, and the Republicans do, you know, stick together, um, with one party against you blocking everything, you're toast. You can't do anything. So we had to break off some chunks of the Republican Party. Now, you know, talking to the pollsters, it's really been interesting that um, a couple of things have changed over the last several years. That, uh, you know, I describe it in this piece I'm working on as a really slow motion tsunami that started with Columbine really slowly, but as is, you know, taking decades, that we went further and further down into hopelessness and despair as a country on any kind of like uh, gun reform or gun safety and really bottomed out at Sandy Hook. And a lot of people think of that as the death of, of you know, gun control. That was the birth of this movement, um, which is approaching it very differently, different message, different way of talking about it, different faces, moms, different people that they're aiming for. A key thing is, a couple of key things have changed is, um, you know, the polling and polling and focus groups have shown that, like, there was um, a sense of hopelessness in a, until about the past three or four years, and which has been changed into really anger. And of people who are, like, fed up and distraught and who are getting pissed off at the legislatures, legislators, including Republicans. And another key, that has been coupled with, and, and so anyway, so despair, hopelessness, that's incredibly demotivating. And anger, rage, wanting to do something, that is motivating. So that has been changing at the same time that who the public is seeing the villain has changed. And that has really been crucial. And the pollster, um, and this is the main person both the organizations use, she's really brilliant, um, talking about it really in the past two to three years, most of the public had seen the NRA as the force standing in the way of all this stuff and frustrating most people who wanted this. Even gun owners want most of this stuff. I mean, obviously, when you're 80 or 90 percent, you know, that's most of the gun owners, too. Right. So everyone has seen the NRA is standing in the way and kind of the enemy stopping this. The last couple of years has been widening out and people are seeing members of Congress as the villain. Like, why aren't you doing something? And why? And, and it's becoming becoming very unpopular to take money from the NRA. And people are starting to see as Congress members as being bought and sold. Now, that's really not exactly what was going on, but fine. They're, they're seeing that as bought and paid for. So when Republicans, what, what shocked me, but not completely, is like, you know, they needed 10 votes, right, to, to, to get this passed in the Senate. They got 15. From so many of them from southern states, from both Carolinas, from Texas, from um I think Tennessee, West Virginia. Is it Shelley DiCapito? The, uh, the senator from, female Republican senator from West Virginia told the New York Times. Shelley Moore Capito, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, sorry, I'm terrible with names. Uh, that she was getting <laughs> calls six to one in favor of passing the bills and angrily and aggressively. That's Republicans in West Virginia. Can you even imagine something? That was unthinkable a few years ago. And she said that's a dramatic change. So the Republicans are starting to peel off and vote for this because it's fun, because their people are finally seeing them as the villain and getting picked off, too. And Mitch McConnell was very telling when he talked about the fact that, like, he voted for it and supported it because the party's losing the suburbs and needs to do something about it. So that party has been trying for a while uh, to peel off. And their members, you know, the dirty little secret, just as it was sort of like on Don't Ask, Don't Tell and a lot of other things, a lot of people in that party wanted to vote for this stuff, but would be politically taken out and shot if they did so. 
So one thing is they, uh, sorry to mix the metaphors, but like uh, one thing is like when you get 15 people to vote for it, it's much safer. No one is the final one. When, when Don't Ask, Don't Tell when the, was repealed in Congress, in the Senate, they went down to the last minute after the Democrats had lost the majority. They had one chance in the lame duck session. It came down to the last day. They lost the vote. I think they got 58 votes or something. They did 60. Susan Collins, bless her heart, although she pisses me off a lot, went on the Senate floor and was really pissed off and demanded, you know, they try this again the next day, even though it was supposed to be the last day, and sort of like shamed them. And then behind the scenes, didn't get 60 votes the next day. I think it was 62 or 63. The reason is no one wanted to be the 60th vote or even the 61st vote because they could get killed in primaries, get slain for it. She had to go back behind the scenes and tell them all, like, look, several of you want to do it. If I get enough of you together, basically we can all jump together. It's safe. That's kind of what happened here. You got 65 votes. 15 of them, uh, nearly a third of the Republican Congress voted for it. So no single person is now on the hook for this. That tells you what's been happening behind the scenes with the Republicans peeling off and wanting to do some of this. So if you're seeing this as this one-off, oh, we got this one thing, but all this other stuff. No, this is this tide that has been changing, coming for a long time. And with the Republicans, a lot of them wanting to do something and afraid of the NRA, Finally, as a group, getting the courage, and it's the first step. So, you know, I see it very differently, and I've seen this coming as the game changing with the, with the NRA really losing its strength with Republican members of Congress. Now, we'll see how far they go, but that's a game changer with the Republicans not blocking everything. And, you know, this has been reported as, you know, the first in the last, you know, 30 years. That's a true statement. This is the first ever federal legislation for this movement, which has completely gone about it completely differently for the last 10 years um, and never had anything like this before. So they finally have a win. I hear what you're saying about, A, the the safety numbers that that often make members of Congress find their courage. And I do think that the fact that that members themselves are – are hearing from their constituents in a different way now than they were a decade ago is revealing. And I think it ties into the the question of how you change culture that I want to get to in a minute. But for an issue like don't ask, don't tell, you know, when you repeal it, that specific goal is achieved, right? Like once don't ask, don't tell is repealed, then serving openly in the military is legal. And, you, you know, the, the people who preferred uh, the previous way they lost, right? Right. The metaphor only goes so far, right? But- yeah. With the with the bill like this one, the gun bill that that just became law, you know, there will be and probably has already been more mass shootings after it. Like it will manifestly not work to stop mass shootings in the U.S., let alone uh, you know street homicide or anything like that. And so people are going to come back and they're going to be mad at their legislators again, and Republicans are going to feel that pressure, but are they going to be willing to go any further than this? It seems like they made their peace with this sort of very incremental bill as a sort of way to wash their hands of their responsibility for everything that came before and everything that might come come after and won't don't really seem to have an appetite for the kinds of things that might actually reduce the number of these kinds of incidents that happen. And, you know, if they if they feel like they need to give a little more, they can always 
sort of count on Sam Alito and the gang to, <laughs> to, uh, to kind of undo it for them or just make sure that the, that the actual tide keeps moving in the pro-gun direction. So th- that's sort of why I feel like if you make passing bills the sort of lodestar for that movement, you're eventually going to um, you're you're going to hit a hit a wall. Well, yeah, I mean, you also have to you know appoint you know Supreme Court justices. I mean, that that's why Democrats have to win the White House and um, you know and you know not get like one of their justices stolen by Mitch McConnell and like all those kinds of yeah. I mean, you know, they also need a majority back on the court. So, given that that's a long <laughs> long term project. Let's talk about what changing gun culture would mean sort of for the interim period, how would you how you would even go about it. The Uvalde killings in particular have rekindled a debate over the power of images. Jay Johnson, the former Homeland Security Secretary, among others actually has weighed in to encourage parents from Uvalde to release crime scene photos of their children. Jelani Cobb, who's a great writer uh, for the New Yorker, wrote probably the best piece arguing against that approach. Um, and before I tip my hand about what I think about that debate, I'm curious if you have strong thoughts on the wisdom of that kind of lurid tactic. Well, at this point, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to try anything, so I don't want to shoot anything uh, down. But I, 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 I kind of think it won't work, and, and particularly because, um, you know, I think a lot about and, and watch a lot about how these things affect people. And in the wake of these... Horror hits about, you know, it's on the, a 10 on, you know, the horror scale, right? America is horrified. I don't think that showing like the lurid images or whatever you want to call them, making that like, you know, a 10 plus, adding more horror, I, I don't think adding more horror changes the equation. I think we're already hitting, we've already topped out horror and making something slightly more horrific, we've already maxed out there. I, I don't think that does anything. I think it's more like what I talked about before. It's it's horror. Uh, it's it's changing the hopelessness when people feel like horrific, and we have to do something. But have um, have been trained to feel like like well, because we always lose because nothing does happen. They lose hope and don't want to do something. So I, I, I don't think adding to the horror helps. I do think you know something did strike me though this week that was a little different version of that because I mean I think maybe you're going wrong. So. Um, I went to Biden's signing ceremony last Monday uh, at the White House. I've never been to one and sort of thought, oh, maybe this might, I don't know what it would be. But some Columbine uh, survivors invited me, so I went with them. Um, and, you know, they said to meet all sorts of, like, people uh, there, and I did. Um, but I was a little surprised to hear Biden talking about it. And by the way, during the campaign, I thought he talked about it so ineptly that while working on the Gabby Giffords big profile for Vanity Fair at the, the gun forum she hosted, you know, I was with her the whole day and all the Democratic uh, candidates, this was during the primaries, um, spoke there. I wasn't planning to do a piece on the event, but because he spoke about it so ineptly, I actually called my editor at Vanity Fair and we did a piece on how inept Biden was talking about it. Uh, that's that's how bad he was. I'm like, I'm like, we had, so, you know, you can see that on the web. Like, um, but so that's how bad he was sort of starting on this. And so I was kind of shocked that he sort of like talked really movingly and eloquently, part, which I attribute to like you know, the last, you know, three years or so, you know, working with the, the gun safety squad. But it, it, one thing in particular that he did, I don't know if people have done this before. I hadn't heard it this way. He talked about automatic weapons in a really um, visceral way. He talked about um, 
you know, how the ammo and the high-powered thing tears through human flesh in such a way that handguns don't, to the point where families are asked for DNA uh, to supply DNA samples for their kids because they're unrecognizable. And where, you know, surgeons are trained for years for, you know, these key moments where they have to act so fast because when you're shot with these weapons that tear apart flesh, you're unlikely to even make the hospital right. And they have like just a few minutes. I never heard anybody talk about it in these ways, those ways that really is getting pretty graphic and horrific. Mm -hmm. But I thought like, this is the time to do in between the shootings. Like, nobody wants to hear that the day after Uvalde or after Parkland or something when we're seeing images of little girls on television, right? And hear about that and, like, picture a specific little girl, right? Or a little boy or what have you. No one wants to hear it and think about individual kids. That's horrible and disgusting. But in between later, when the the passion and the horror has subsided, then to talk in very graphic terms of like what these things really are. There's weapons, weapons of war being used against civilians that are just such horrific and make us think about it in a picture. That type of graphic horror is useful, but used in a employed in a different way than say open caskets. So I think, you know, the idea of Expressing the horror is the right idea. The open caskets for very is is the wrong approach, and it's really the wrong timing. So, I, I mean, in in the same vein as you, I think that it's worth trying, just because why why not try everything that might work? I mean, I, I as a journalist, I sort of think we should set a very high bar for for sanitizing depictions of what guns do to human bodies and particularly to the most defenseless ones right um and i also think that there are reasons why news media should sh- use discretion if if a convincing case is made that their inclination towards full disclosure is is creating big social harms right like it, it the media's gotten much better about not glorifying the, the shooters and not repeating their names over and over again. But that was in response to, I think, like hard data suggesting that they were encouraging copycat killers. And so they they pulled back on on that part of what would normally be just workaday journalism. Who did what, when, where, how, and why. Without hard data like that suggesting that there'd be something counterproductive socially about about not editing video footage, not not withholding photographic evidence. It seems to me like the main thing we're doing is making it easier for people to forget. And you can sort of see it in in polling data, right? Like in the immediate aftermath, like you suggested, maybe the timing's wrong because in the immediate aftermath of these shootings, public opinion swings dramatically against Republicans. It swings in a pro-gun safety direction, but only for like a few weeks. And then it reverts back to the status quo ante. And so, well, I don't know that the opinion changes, actually. I think the impetus to do something about it fades, comes back down. Yes, yes. I mean, over time, as I read the data, it's sort of, you get a huge swing and and then it reverts and a huge swing again, then it reverts. But the trend is slowly overall toward action um, against uh, sort of gun libertarianism or whatever you want to call it. But if that's your backdrop, then we've just... I think, okay, 
we just lived through watching the the right wing in the U.S. win a 50-year fight against the right to abortion. And how did they do that? Well, they didn't really follow the strategy that I think the modern gun regulation movement did of, of sort of appealing to the center and trying to amass overwhelming public support. I think they did it um, by capturing the courts, but they did that by constantly reminding their own supporters what it is they hate about abortion. You know, they pick it outside of abortion clinics with these graphic visceral signs and and they make sure that no part of their movement gets lulled into complacency about the issue. And, or I guess the, the hope would be that at some point, these images like the image of the, 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 the poor migrant child who drowned in the Rio Grande River or the case of Emmett Till, which is a sort of classic one uh, from the civil rights era, would help galvanize and, and radicalize people who, under current conditions, will sort of content themselves with incremental progress or they'll be really upset for a couple weeks and then just kind of forget. And to the extent that we can collectively make that harder for the public to do, I think the likelier it is we'll get to a point, and it may be 10 or 20 years down the line, where you don't just pass the next incremental bill, but you actually win. Well, yeah, you know, the, the other thing that I, you know, I forgot about this, that like, um, that I think was really different about those, and particularly the Emmett Till moment, the Rio Grande, I also think with Matthew Shepard, with the, um, you know, the, mm-hmm. the gay rights thing, and like, when people saw him, you know, tied up to the fence, uh, like, a, and described like a scarecrow, I, I think of those as eye-opening moments, and people who were in disbelief and didn't really believe the horror. And I know from being very closer to the gay thing, like, like I know a lot of straight people thought, like, oh, gay bashing, yeah, whatever, like that. Happened. Okay, I'm sure that happens one in a million. They didn't really think it was a real thing until confronted <clears throat> with it. And obviously, I didn't, you know, that one I lived through. I didn't live through the Emmett Till, but I think I, my perception is a lot of white people thought, like, oh, this, you know, that's not really, you know, that's one in a million. It's not really going on. And really confronted, like, oh, this is real. This is really happening. Whereas with mass shootings, I just like, I don't think there's any eyes to be opened. I think everybody freaking like knows, like, it's, you know, it's very clear. Like kids go to school, you know, from the time they're six and have to go through like lockdown drills. Like everybody in America knows this problem. There's no eyes to be opened on this. So I think you're, you you know, you're, you're not uh, getting that. But I, you know, I, I think you're right that the, uh, you know, the right on the abortion is like, like they, you know, went after the courts and they spent like 30 years, you know, electing people and then like, you know, having the Federalist, Federalist Society pick these people, uh, you know, very, very right-wing activist political judges. Um, and of course, sort of like arguing the opposite, right, on left-wing activist judges, well, just like as a stealth mood to hide the fact that they were doing it. You know, so that's, that's, probably, that's probably something the gun safety movement should have been doing. But, um, you know, if you want, I mean, I, I think you brought up something really, really interesting, though, about the gun culture. And early on in the intro that I do want to talk about, too, is like, you know, whether we make gun lovers love their guns less or what we do on that front. I'd like mm-hmm. to talk about that. Yeah. You know, I, I, I would put a slightly different spin on it because, well, first of all, I don't think you're going to get them to love it less. Um, I think it's barking up the wrong tree. But I also think there's a different way of doing it. And I would really, um, this isn't my idea, but... Um, I've heard a lot of people in the gun safety movement talk about it. Um, the difference between, you know, auto safety and gun safety. And both gun control and auto safety movements started 
pretty much at the same time in the 60s, uh, with Ralph Nader, you know, pushing. And they were both very, very controversial. In fact, the auto safety was much more controversial. I'll throw one stat at you just to tell you, show you how far badly the gun control bungled this. The Gallup poll in 1959 asked Americans if they wanted to ban all handguns, except by cops. Nearly two to one Americans did. 60% to, I think, 34 so that's sort of like your baseline where they were getting started, where most of the country wanted to get rid of all the handguns. That's unthinkable now, right? And we, uh. you know, assault weapons, you know, barely existed in civilian hands. So we've gone backwards so far. But at the same time, you know, gun control or auto, um, you know, there were two big concerns in America of people dying on the highways and dying, you know, in the cities, you know, handguns and so forth. They called them Saturday Night Specials then. The gun controllers went in one mode in thinking about it in terms of controlling them, doing something to stamp down on these objects and the weapons that completely turned off the half of America that owned them, and more important, loved them and identified with them. Nader and the gun safety people, who are very unpopular for a while, went with safety. They've been wildly successful. You know, since then we've had, you know, seatbelts weren't even required in cars back at that time, much less, you know, were forced to wear them. Seatbelts, you know, airbags, anti-lock brakes, you know, those things, side impact things. Like now it's a feature that people demand. The other huge thing that these two things have in common is the people who have them, so much of their identity is wrapped up in them. Just as you would never want to make cars less popular or, I don't know, for the planet you might now like, like, you know, whether they have a Camaro or like, like whatever they're drawing or like, yeah, I'm dating myself there. Like, um, you know, whatever car, people love their cars and identify with them or, you know, their trucks and their guns. This is part of their identity and you're never going to win that game that way. You can win the game by saying like this thing that you love, we can make it better. We can make it safer, make you enjoy it more. The other reason that safety really resonates with their crowd is, you know, if only there was an organization on their side and the gun owner's side for gun safety, right? Pushing for that. Well, there is. There was an organization, a very large organization started in the wake of the Civil War. Their whole reason for existence for the first hundred and some years was gun safety. They named it the NRA, the National Riflemen's Association. That is such a core value. When you think about any dad or a mom, but particularly dad, who buys the first rifle for his son or daughter, the same way they don't just toss him the car keys when you're 16 and say like, okay, have fun with it. It's like, like you're going to learn to use this thing safely right now. That is a core value that they actually believe in. Like they don't just hand the kid the thing and like, you know, like everybody would be dead if they're, you're just handing little kids guns. They teach them to use them. That's very important to them. And the other thing talking about the pollsters, the thing that resonates with those kinds of people is like they do like gun safety. They do like the idea of closing loopholes. They don't like the idea of like a whole bunch of more laws and people controlling us or, you know, making our lives shitty or harder to live with with our guns. They do like the idea when you talk about like, like, yeah, but the laws we have, they're always talking about like we need to enforce the ones we have. When you talk about like, yes, they've got shitty loopholes in them. We make making them better so the people who are um, irresponsible have to, you know, that kind of argument appeals to them. So you have to think about it in terms of like not making something they love and consider a part of themselves, take it away. I don't think you're ever going to win the game by taking away things they love, making it more attractive, understanding them 
and how it works their psychology. That's how you win the game. Sixty Minutes is the oldest and most watched news magazine on television, getting the real story on America's most prevalent issues. Now, episodes of the hit news program are available for your ears as a podcast. Follow along with your favorite CBS News correspondents as they contribute on topics from hard news coverage to politics, lifestyle, pop culture, and more. Listen to 60 Minutes wherever you get your podcasts. I agree that like the most direct coercive form of anti-gun activism, for instance, would be these guns are legal. There's a new law now. We're going to take those guns away. This is what always inspires people who are like celebrate guns and take pictures of their whole family with guns. This is when they all rise up and say like, you know, come and take them, right? Like they, they, they basically adopt a rhetoric of, of menace and threat that if you ever try to take these weapons away, we'll use them against you, right? So that seems like a, a, a dangerous and counterproductive path to go down. Um, I, I'm taken with your point about how if you, ref, if you talk about the alternative measures that you could use as sort of making uh, guns safer and better, that you could change the way people think about um, about the proliferation of guns, the way we distinguish between like safe drivers and drunk drivers or something like that. And there's, I think, you know, no doubt in my mind that if you pulled it, you'd find that, that people don't want government to, you know, set a limiter on how fast their car can go. Right. But they support the strict enforcement of drunk driving laws. I'm thinking less along the lines of how can a movement that's already sort of working out which legislative proposals they'd prefer, like which ones they choose and how they talk about them, and more like what could the people who have influence over mass culture do to make it so that guns aren't so widely celebrated in the first place or to to change the window of thinking so that there's – Deglamorize. Yeah, deglamorize them – Stop making the people who own the guns, stop portraying them as the, the, the tough people and the people who want to take them away as the sort of scolds and, and weak people and cowards, but actually as the people who, uh, who are, you know, have a brave, better vision for the country. And I don't know how you do that, but, you know, movies and TV and social media, they must contribute to gun culture in some way. Uh, I'm wondering, you know, how you think that, that, lever works and what could change to make those things a less sort of baleful influence? Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think pop culture is really powerful on so many factors. And I've seen it on like, you know, cigarettes in films or, uh, you know, cigarette smoking, uh, drinking, like glamorizing a lot of behavior. Even like, you know, like, I mean, what used to be called womanizing, right? Back in like the 50s. Or but, you know, it used to be like, like, you know, like, you know, um, film, you know, heroes were, you know, kind of like, you know, like uh, shitty to women, you know, and like just like, yeah. a, um, and over time that, cha- yeah, that, that was like a cool thing to be. And but anyway, uh, yeah, I think pop culture is like extremely influential uh, in these kinds of things. Um, now, um, changing that, I, God, I 
those, those things are freaking hard to do. I mean, you know, with, with I mean, with certain things like cigarettes, it was a simpler thing. Like, like you know, they just took them out and like made it very like you you rarely see people smoking on TV or film. Um, God, you know, I, I I don't know with guns. Um, I mean, I've always felt like uh, yeah, glamorizing the people, sort of the vigilante thing. I I always felt like that was like. Uh, you know, whether it's like, you know, well, you know, most of the people aren't a Schwarzenegger play, aren't Schwarzenegger plays or Bruce Willis or get him dating myself with some of the references. But like, you know, people who act heroic, heroically by like or, you know, Liam Neeson movies like I'm going to go after like, you know, my, my daughter. <laughs> I have a very particular set of skills. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't think that helps. But God. I don't want to. I don't want to come off here as as like as like being scoldy and like Hollywood shouldn't have action movies because I love Liam Neeson movies, even the really bad ones. I guess I'm thinking more like you know the subtle difference between how movies portrayed chauvinism in the '50s as sort of like these were our, our, our almost like role model figures, and how they portray them in like Mad Men or something like that, where you're literally depicting the same culture. But from a modern perspective where you're not really glamorizing Don Draper, I mean, I, I know some people probably took the show to be glamorizing him just because he's a good looking guy who's dressed well or whatever. But but really, like, that's a depiction of a of a broken man. Right. Um, and, you know, that's a that's a subtle artistic choice. But I think that it, you know, it it has a big reach. Um, and, you know, the sort of proof is in the pudding that you know, things are better today than they were on that score, at least in the in the 1950s. You know, because it's such a big question, what can mass culture do differently or, or how can people who have influence over it use that influence to push things in a better direction? Because there's so many movies and so many books and so many TV shows and stuff. But I think if you look at just the sort of sub-genre of movies, TV shows, other forms of media that have kind of grown up around Columbine and around the mass shooting since that you could sort of reimagine how we make that kind of media, right? Like off the top of my head, there's a Gus Van Sant movie called Elephant. That's basically Columbine, the story of Columbine rendered from an almost like behind the camera perspective from, I'm going to mess this up, Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris, or did I? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's another movie, uh, which is kind of a remarkable movie of it uh, in its own right, called "We Need to Talk About Kevin." But they aren't really movies about the toxin of gun culture, right? Like I think even in in, in "We Need to Talk About Kevin," here's a spoiler: the, the kid doesn't actually even use a gun in the in the sort of climactic scene. So it's sort of like its own little advertisement for the idea that you know if we ban guns, then people would just use other weapons to to do their mass killing or whatever. Anyway, I, I, I'm I'm kind of rambling about this, but I, I, I guess I could imagine just in that small subset of cultural creative product that that we've not seen movies, TV shows along those lines that are are less character stories about troubled young people and are more sort of allegories about America's gun sickness. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, unfortunately, I don't think many people like want to watch. I don't think those are heavily watched. I also, by the way, with the Elephant, I, I, I don't know. I did not like. I did not like that film for a lot of reasons. But um, one of the things is like I felt it climaxed with violence porn. 
Um, I mean, I think, you know, sort of like violence porn as a concept is, is something that is a problem. Where when you use violence as the climax of your movie, really the emotional payoff of it, when you're leading toward it and the whole audience is waiting the whole time and then gets a big shoot 'em up. Um, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't think that's working in the right direction. But I, I think sort of like a wider net is more useful. I, you know, I don't know where this will go. I did see like an, where this will go or might go. I saw sort of like a frustrated open letter from somebody in Hollywood that got a lot of coverage right after Uvalde, um, you know, in the, in the trade magazines um, of somebody talking about that we in the industry need to start thinking about this and doing something about it. And even though that frustrated me in the short run, like, okay, whatever. But you know what? I mean, maybe that is the kind of thing that sometimes takes a while to percolate. And you and I probably mm-hmm. can't figure out the hows of doing that. But people making these films, starting to have that conversation, um, you know, creative people doing it, you know, talking about since it's like may start to figure some things out. Like, well, what if we did this? Or like trying certain things out. You know, a lot of things in any kind of art, you know, somebody does it well and then everybody else copies it. Like, oh, that really yeah. works. So, I, yeah, I don't, I like the idea. I don't know that you and I are like in a position to figure it out or that anyone really. But really, seriously, I mean, that's the kind of thing that's such a well, tough nut I, to crack. I, I, but I, over time, <laughs> what getting the conversation going with, you know, people who are creating this stuff might be like, huh, well, you know. I think this. I, I think this podcast is actually going to be the thing that fixes it. I think that you and I have solved it now. No, I, I look like I. I agree that that you know any any one movie, particularly a niche film about mass killings, is is going to work only on the thinnest of margins. And also, you know, the whole idea that that I'm interested in here is a little ancillary, right? Like they have violent movies and video games in countries that don't have guns, and obviously, the countries that don't have Tons of guns everywhere don't have our violence problem with them. So obviously, like the quantity of guns and is is like the the main thing that ideally you'd you'd want to be able to to modulate. But with that option sort of unavailable, uh, creating a, a different kind of stigma around them through whatever cultural means you have seems like at, at least worth experimenting with. And I think that you know. This is sort of a very loose analogy, but like the movie Belfast that came out last year, like I loved it. I saw it uh, a couple times. It it touched me in like a very unexpected way, and I was raving about it to somebody who, for whatever reason, was annoyed by the fact that there apparently aren't smokers in that movie. Like it it doesn't depict anyone on the streets of Belfast in whatever year it was supposed to be, the 1950s or 60s, uh, smoking cigarettes, which if it were trying to be photorealistic about life during the troubles, half the people would be smoking. And I mean, I just didn't notice. And even sitting here, I'm not even certain it's it's true, but that is the sort of thing that has changed over time where the, you know, the, the people who make the art have stopped just sort of mindlessly putting cigarettes in everyone's mouth. And it like corresponds with a, trend towards people smoking less. And I mean, obviously there's a lot more that went into that than just what happens on TV or in movies, but I think that they are connected in some way and that you can imagine uh, a cultural milieu in a very short time from now, just kind of making the baseline assumption among the population about guns, one that's more like revulsion than one that's sort of like 
like a different manifestation of the flag. Yeah. I mean, that is interesting. Um, maybe. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, I, it's definitely worth a shot. And like, especially with a certain part of the uh, public. But I, I, to me, like um, a big trouble with the movement and getting thing passed over like, for many years and what the gun controllers didn't figure out for several decades is that there's sort of like two groups of people in America concerning guns. People who have them, love them, central to their lives, and people who like basically never think about them. Like, and I've mostly been in that category. And the reason we, you know, had this asymmetrical voting for decades and the people, you know, who wanted so-called gun rights kept voting for them and the other people, you know, didn't vote for gun control is like, if you're a gun guy and it's really important to your life, it's there in your house. It's like you think about it all the day. And I encourage people to think about it like the way you might think about your beard. Like, I don't know how, like, uh, much it matters to you, but like, but that's the kind of identity, like, you know, or people like in the 60s or 70s asking them to cut their hair, right? It was like, like, I will sooner die than cut my hair. Or like some people about their beards are like, it takes on that way, you know, or like, you know, my truck uh, or, you know, the brand of beer I drink. Like, you know, I'm a Budweiser man or whatever. Or like, you know, or, you know, I only drink, you know, scotch or whatever. It has those kinds of overturns that I never really understood until like the last couple of years. And really talking to Ryan Bussey, who like wrote a great book from the inside, who's a, a gun executive, who's like, you know, sort of like now part of the gun safety movement, talking about like, that's what people on our side never get is how essential it is to their life. So those people, I don't know how much you can change that. Meanwhile, the other people, it's not like, you know, I don't know how much you could get them to like, like love or hate guns or hate them. It's just like, don't give a shit. Like most people yeah. like me, like, like, you, you know, I was in the army like decades ago and, you know, um, you know, M16, I know how to disassemble, you know, but in the decades since then, I, I don't, you know, maybe one or two times I've picked up a gun. They're just not part of my life. They're invisible. And so I don't know how much you can get. So what, what I think about it, these two different groups of people, the gun lovers and holders, you're, it's going to be very hard to change their opinion on it or their take on it. And the other side, I don't know that revulsion will really help. Like, like it's just not a part of life. It, it just doesn't even exist in my life. It only exists when like the news comes on and there's mass shootings. But in my own personal life, they literally don't exist. And so like, it's harder to get a feeling about something that's not even there. So, I mean, I, I think that's wonder. why it's like a little something different. Like cigarettes and drinking, like it's everywhere, or it used to be. Like it's just people smoking everywhere. But so I don't know. I, so I, I think it's a weird I, animal. I, I do wonder how sustainable the sort of indifference among people who just don't own guns and don't think, you know, that not sustainable. I, I just mean that like the, the Supreme Court is trying to basically shove as many guns into public spaces as will fit, right? Like eventually that's going to have – it's going to change the way people think about how safe they are in places where they assume that, that there was no risk to them, right? Because because soon everywhere in the country probably you're in downtown walking around having a sort of normal afternoon and now you have to start wondering whether – all the strangers around you are packing heat, right? And you n and you never thought about that before. And um, and this is sort of why I think that the sort of politics of visceral imagery are compelling because you you want them to stop being 
you know, I, I don't want to, um, you know, there, there's research about how these mass shooting drills in schools basically traumatize kids. And I have, I have serious misgivings about how wise they are, even, even though it's clear that, that children know how to handle these situations better than their parents in most cases. But, um, but so I, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't think that we ought to be out there like traumatizing the half of the country that manages to sort of be blissfully indifferent to, to the proliferation of guns, but to, to make them think about it the way they think about, hopefully start thinking about climate change or about the economy or whatever, that this is, this is now ambient. It's not something that those guys do. It's not something that happens in inner cities and in rural America. And then occasionally in a school somewhere it's everywhere and it's creating unacceptably high levels of risk for me, for my family, for my community. And I think that, you know, like well-meaning people, activists and um, people who make art and stuff have some influence over that level of consciousness for that group of people. And then uh, for the people who think about it like their, you know, their, their favorite brand of beer or whatever, um, you know, at the risk of sort of going all hillbilly elegy here, I think that like the 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 real cultural it, it's a shame that it, it's like it's it's a it's a question for the uh you know sort of leadership figures of the overwhelming majority of Americans to try to come up with solutions because tw- you know 25% refuse to budge but I think that like the most effective single thing that could happen would be for somebody you know somebody like Ryan Bussey but with a higher profile to um to sort of engage in a form of respectability politics, but for, but for like right wing men, like if, like if Charlton Heston were still alive and was like, Hey, you know, I know what I said for all those years about for my cold dead hands, but actually, you know, I've, I've given it some more thought and I don't think that this is good for us and we shouldn't do that anymore. Even if like Trump were like, I'm still all MAGA, but I don't think that we're in a good place with guns, that these sort of influencers, people who have influence over right-wing American psychology could do more with just a few resources, some earned media, and like a, a modicum of good conscience to make people think, eh, you know what, like we could really use to trade in nine of our 10 rifles and just reduce the the likelihood that any one of those ends up in the hands of somebody who's going to kill a dozen people. But, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think the closest thing you saw, God, I'm just it's terrible. It was like, it was a basketball coach, right? I think after Uvalde. Who was the coach who like came out looking very angry a day or two after Uvalde? But I think we know we need like, you know, country music people, NASCAR drivers, um, you know, football players, military um, difference has been very big on, you know, getting generals to do videos and stuff, but, you know, I don't know how profile they are, but yeah, but like, you know, working that angle too of like, um, and there are some groups that have like helped germinate, um, of gun owners for gun safety. There's one in Colorado, there's four or five states now, I think that have them. Um, yeah, but getting, yeah, gun owners, but, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know about like the reducing the number. I mean, that's possible, but, um, you know, for me, I think the more likely route is just trying to make them safer. Whether, you know, one of the big things that uh, is the movement's been pushing now is um, safe storage laws. And people like, because, you know, God, most of the school shootings, so many of the mass shootings, I forget the latest you know, numbers, but like, you know, they get the gun from somebody in their family or somebody close to them um, that, you know, should be locked up. 
you know, or domestic abusers or other people within the family. You know, the other thing that we haven't talked about here either is, um, and I think a big part of the movement is working towards is that, uh, you know, mass shootings are a really tiny percentage of the gun deaths mm-hmm. in America. I had my uh, researcher, it's something like 0.017% or something. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's kind of a rounding error. But, you know, we also need to be talking about some of the other big categories of gun deaths. The biggest category by far is suicides. It's mm-hmm. not just the biggest one, it's two thirds. So all the murders, all the deaths put up together, the suicides are twice as much as that, and we never talk about them. And, you know, the biggest single thing you can do for suicides is just delay the access. Because most, you know, gun suicides are spontaneous acts. And if you can just delay it, you usually solve it. And, you know, I can get into all the other reasons because, like, you know, uh, well, first of all, I'll give you a few. It's like um, gun suicides are almost always successful. It's something like more than 90% success rate. And most forms of suicides are incredibly unsuccessful. Like poisoning is like in the single digits. You know, because you put a gun in your mouth and you pulled the trigger, you're going to freaking die, right? Um, uh-huh. Anyway, so suicides is a big one. You know, inner city violence is a gigantic one. Like most of the murders happen in cities, people of color, in specific neighborhoods, and even in specific uh, street corners. So the other thing the movement is working on is like, like, what do we do about that? Which is often very different. Um, and they've actually come up with some very successful things, violence interrupter programs. Uh, And it's basically stopping, you know, the escalation of gang-on-gang violence. So, I mean, some of the areas that we're talking about is like saving lots and lots of lives that have nothing to do with mass shootings. Uh, There are other ways of skinning this cat of like like saving millions of people beyond the ones that we're all, you know, seeing about. And frankly, the ones where like, you know, cute suburban white kids are killed in the mass shootings. When, like, you know, I, millions I, I, of people are dying in this, you know, tens of thousands of people in the cities um, for different reasons, and they need different kinds of solutions. I hear you, and I have, like, very sort of personal feelings about street-level gun violence. Um, you know, I do think that— Are some of the feelings of- that it's intractable, that it's unsolvable? Oh, no, I was I, I was referring to the—I I got, I got caught up in a— street gun violence situation <laughs> several years ago. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I mean, you know, I totally hear the point about the sort of over-focus on these, you know, horrific, terrifying mass shooting scenes. Part of the reason why I think it's it's still appropriate to focus on them is that I think in the realms of, of suicide and like street crime, there are productive, well-meaning people kind of trying to sort it out as best they can against the backdrop of federal law and these sort of perverse readings of the constitution make it really difficult to make headway. But I think, I think people have the incentive and just the, the sort of decency to want to try to get those things under control through various means, right? Um, Policing and, um, and early intervention and mental health and so on. But also Uh, a lot of these same gun laws impact these, but yeah, yeah. And with the the mass shooting thing is sort of like, you know, you could probably deregulate sort of air travel safety a bit and save some money and you'd still have air travel be by far the safest way to travel, but but plane crashes are so horrific just thinking about them, let alone witnessing them. Nobody 
By the way, I'm not totally, yeah, and I'm not against, you know, my head was turned around actually when talking again to, you know, this great pollster several weeks ago um, and frustration of why the focus on these, like, like, you know, why isn't there more focus on these other things? And she said, because no one cares about them. There's one thing that motivates people to do something on gun safety and it's mass shootings. And the reason yeah. once you tick through them makes all, makes sense. Like they don't think those apply to them. You know, you get on the list of like, like suicides. I'm never going to do that. And, you know, basically people are very judgmental, like I'm being hyperbolic here, but basically like, you know, my family and friends aren't such losers. They're not pathetic people. They're never going to do that, which of course is silly, but everybody thinks like, like, oh, the people I know, that's never going to happen to me or my friends or family. Right. Yeah. It's totally wrong. True. But that's what they think. Um, you know, inner cities like, like I don't live there. Like, sucks for those people, but doesn't affect me. Even people of color in cities, most of them don't live in those micro areas where most of the people are dying. Uh, so again, most yeah. people like, not my problem. Um, you know, you can go down the list or, you know, and like so many like stolen weapons is like, like, oh, but I'm careful and people around, you know, it's not going to happen to me. All those things on the list, like they think it's not going to happen to them. But where mass shootings, everybody does feel like it happens to them. So the fact that like, like, Okay, this motivates everybody to change these laws, which will affect all those other things too. You know, I've come around to like, okay, I am, I guess I'm okay with us talking about this and using this. Like, this can change, you know, get legislation or changes yeah. made, which then helps all those other ones. Um, although, you know, the, the inner That's city ones, you know, it, you know, I cannot stress enough. Like, so here's one good piece of good news that, like, like, that has just happened completely under the radar. They got huge funding this year for these violence interrupter programs. The gist of the programs, they make a massive difference. They've been pilot programs in a shitload of hospitals, all which have been working spectacularly, more than anybody thought, but they don't have enough funding and to be expanded. But the gist of it is when, you know, when somebody's shot in a gang, the other gang has, and I'm simplifying, but you know, here's a simple version. The other gang has to respond. And usually they have to up the ante or they've seen it, they've seen it as weak and they have to. Um, and then they do, and then there's a counter strike and you have these cycles of violence. Um, the thing is, that just give us, the gangs don't want to. They understand, they're not stupid. They understand the cycle of violence and they understand their retribution is gonna make their life hell and they don't wanna do it, but they don't really have a way out of this. So they come up with like right in the ERs in Cook County Hospital and Oakland and Baltimore, all these places, like luckily it's specific freaking hospitals. They have teams of people with, you know, community members, pastors, you know, people who are respected in the community. They're all white on call, sitting there waiting for this, you know, the guy going to be wheeled in in the ambulance and you have a small window of opportunity to de-escalate, to find out like, what gang are you on? What's going on? And luckily their friends are, you know, people come with them, like go and meet with both sides and de-escalate it. And, you know, this might seem like one of those things like pine this guy, they actually were. And they've been, you know, been, been trying out for five or 10 years, but they didn't have enough money. So they got 200 million just for this year. And one of the reasons that they could never get this passed is the NRA was constantly against it and fighting it. So the Republicans didn't vote for it. And I finally you know, asked the Giffords people, like, why did they finally, you know, they didn't fight it this year. And, you know, they said like, well, we don't really know why the NRA does what, you know, they're, they're not telling us, but we think because they're picking their battles because they're, they're having trouble, like, you know, they're on their back legs. So like they stopped fighting it 
And so the Republicans voted for it. They didn't give a shit. Nobody talked about it. Like the Republicans didn't want to be against it, but they weren't allowed to vote for it until the NRA decided like, like, what the fuck do we care? And they dropped it and all this money got passed. This is a huge thing that is happening that will save massive numbers of lives that no one has even heard about or knows what's happening. But that's quietly happening behind the scenes. And I almost think the like, like, it's better for the politicians like, like, just let's not talk about it. Let's just do it. Like nobody, you know, like we're not going to get in trouble with it because nobody does. But so there are other things that are happening that, you know, in Chicago, that's going to have a huge fucking difference. Yeah. And, and, and this is sort of why I think that, you know, in a world where everyone was rowing in the same direction, like everyone agreed that actually the, the price of freedom isn't 40,000 people who die from gunshot wounds every year, it would be a, a like a, just a, a much different conversation. And you can sort of approximate th- that conversation in communities where uh, people have more influence over different facets of community life. The mass shooting uh, culture is really just a, it, it's like almost like Republican politics, like expressed. And th- you know, conservative leaders, the NRA, Republican elected officials, they end up having to basically say, we're not really interested in stopping this because it's it's just a sort of outgrowth of the America we want. And so naturally, politics happens around that, you know, conflictual partisan politics. And I guess it's a good way to like lead me to my my final provocation for you um is that is that since that's like where the sort of fight is and and for whatever it's worth like mass shootings are the uh, sort of epicenter around which the the uh the gun debate happens um is there something to say for a sort of like focus on the, the gun culture side of things as opposed to the legislative side of things insofar as when you lose a legislative fight, it is demoralizing in the ways that you earlier mentioned are sort of poison for, a, for an activist movement. Whereas if you're trying to change people's minds and hearts and you're trying to change media and you're trying to change these other things that comprise the culture, you can kind of always be on the offense. Like you're, you're always like push it, pushing in a positive direction and there's no veto point, right? There's no filibuster or, or Supreme court majority. That's going to say, at least for now anyway, um, you know, you can't, you, you can't do that. Like you can always try new things. You can always push the envelope in different ways, and that presumably uh, is sort of sort of creates the momentum that that you risk losing if you put all of your chips in the in the gun safety law basket. Well, I like the idea a lot of changing the public perception of them. What I, I kind of like what might help of like um, I get I'm getting a little stuck on is like, what are you trying to change it to? Like, I'll give, throw out a couple things, but, like, feel free to, like, like, like you know, the guns are intrinsically dangerous or bad or harmful or, like, or that we have too much of them or, like, like, what is it the emotion, like, what do you want people to feel about them that you're trying to change? I guess I'd say I'd want, uh, you know, some margin, some number of people who are gun owners, um, you know, I, I think you're probably not going to reach the... Like like actual gun nuts, but a lot of people who aren't gun nuts own guns. 
to start thinking that seeing guns as sort of uh, an expression of, of toughness or independence or whatever is actually just kind of a form of weakness, right? Um, you know, without, without, you know, saying and doing the counterproductive things like, like when Barack Obama talked about people clinging to their guns and their religion, like you don't want to condescend to them, but, but, but give them a, a new framework for thinking about what their ownership of guns says about them. Does it say that they're awesome or does it say that they're not? Um, I think you can change that. And, and there's, you know, some number of millions of people who you, you might be able to reach and make them, you know, sort of decide guns aren't for them or they don't really need this many. They shouldn't celebrate uh, guns as a, as like a, as a piece of machinery. And then separately to keep the other half of the country that, you know, you, mentioned before, most of the time they don't think about guns at all, to, uh, for, for them to, to be sort of more permanently mobilized against, um, the, the status quo on guns because they don't think it's acceptable even when, you know, they feel like they're safe and at home and there's no guns in the house. And so, you know, that's somebody else's problem. I, you know, I think that though, like, those are the things we could change. It's, it's, it's like in, in, you know, politics, people talk about the Overton window shifting, and they're usually talking about it in the policy space. And I'm talking about it here in the sort of cultural space, right? Um, in the same way that, that you, you the, the way people thought about everything from cigarettes to drunk driving to homophobia to, you know, to shifted rapidly over the last 30, 40, 50 years. The guns seem to have gone in the other direction. And I, I think that it's feasible, at least, that the pendulum could swing back. And you could have um, sort of like... Yeah, we have fewer and fewer people owning them, but we have more guns because, like, the people yeah. who do it are, are owning more. I will tell you, like, one example of, like, what you're up against there, though. Of, like, um, So I'll give you an example of a gun. Now. And this I, I re, this helped change my thinking or helped me, like, understand the depths of, like, what we're dealing with. So here's an example of a gun nut, of, like, who really loves her guns. Um, Gabby Giffords owns a Glock. She was shot in the head with a Glock. But, like, she still has one in her house because she had one. She had it before she was shot because she just loves them. She thinks they're kind of cool and fun. She grew up on a ranch. She was, like, a little cowgirl, right? And so she's always had them. And, like, the fact that, like, somebody shot me in the head with one isn't going to make me get rid of them with the one I have. I still like it. I'm always going to like it. So, like, <laughs> so, I mean, that's the example. You can get shot in the head. <laughs> <laughs> with the one you have, it's still like, yeah, but I still like it. You know, it's also sort of like trying to get, you know, rid of like your cowboy hat or cowboy boots. You know, you know what I mean? It's like, well, anyway, the, the identity drum. But um, but I do get, but I do like, on the other side, I think you're definitely onto something. And but I think it has been changing of the other side of like, even though for people like me who like never see a gun, they're not a part of my life, but gun violence is part of my life. And the horrors of guns. So, like, so I mean, I, I think that is also what we're having to work toward is getting people who are, and I guess this is using some of your words, but like permanently mobilized. That, like, yeah, it, this does matter to me. But I've always felt too well. Always felt the last several years. Like, you need to give people some hope that there is something that they can actually ever vote for uh, because they win sometimes. That's why I also think this bill was crucial. They needed a fucking win. After 30 yeah. years of always losing, who the hell's going to vote for this stuff when it's like, like, yeah, but they always lose. Why, you know, what difference does it make? They need to start yeah, I, fucking I, winning. I, I should say, I, you know, the, the, re the reason I wanted to have this conversation mostly be about the, about gun culture and changing gun culture 
in the U.S. is uh, is to the end that at the you know if if you change enough, not so it's like oh ninety ten on background checks, but like seventy percent of people think you know get back to the glory days when seventy percent of people thought you should just get all handguns off the street, like really change public opinion so that eventually you know when the when the right political wave comes you can do something more meaningful than the bill that just passed to make America like just fundamentally safer and freer. Um, it's, it's not to just wage endless culture war forever. It's to sort of begin setting the table now the way Republicans did on abortion and many other things. You know, they have this expression that, um, politics is downstream of culture. They, this is, you know, was, I think Andrew Breitbart's, uh, phrasing. And I, you know, I don't always think that that's, correct, but I do think that there's something to it that if you can polarize and accentuate and, you know, not just more people side with you, but make them feel really strongly about things through ambient means and not through just who you vote for and what you expect them to do in office, that you can really dramatically change what the what the realm of the politically possible is, more so than fielding candidates asking them to make certain promises, contesting elections and trying to use those majorities to pass bills. Because as we've seen, you know, it took 30 years, there's been one victory and it, it's, you know, it's, it's not the bill that's going to fix the problem. But I just see, I, I actually just see so much more opportunity on the other side. I mean, when, you know, we talk about these things, what we said, like, okay, you know, these things, this item is 80, 90%. If you look at the top, six or eight items on the Every Town agenda, they all poll in the 80s to 90%. Or like, you know, even, you know, assault weapons, I think is in the 70s. But so like, you know, that's just really frustrating. How come there's big majorities? But the part I think we're overlooking that like that means gun owners are also wanting to do this. I, see, uh-huh. Here's what I think is the opportunity. You know, and background checks are polling at like 95%. And I think I, I haven't looked, like, something like a third of Americans have guns. Well, that means if you're in the 90s, that means you've got most of the gun owners wanting to do it. Here's the reason it's not happening is because most of these things most gun owners want to do, they don't trust. It's like their mantra, the NRA has mantra for the last since the 70s has been never give an inch because they say, you know, we're over here and here like we want sensible stuff, you know, in the middle. And the NRA says they're not going to meet you in the middle all they're going to do is push you all the way to the other side. And if you, you just hold the line, never give an inch on anything. So they have been having, their people have been voting against their own interests for decades, saying like, yeah, I actually would like that to happen. But can't trust the, the you know, the liberal people to do it. They're going to take away all our guns. They're going to do, you know, it's confiscation, confiscation. We can't trust them. So you've got this like huge Half of the country, like when we talk about Red America, who actually wants to meet us on most of these things, most of the things on the Everytown agenda, most of their side wants to do too, but doesn't trust us to do it with them. I mean, I think that's really the whole ball game. If those people could ever believe, okay, we can work out something of just the shit we want to do too, both sides would be completely happy with that, but they won't cut that deal because they don't think they think they're going to get screwed if they you know, cut the deal. Like, I think that is a thing to overcome is if we can get their side coming around and being like, 
okay, if we can do like, you know, all these things, we actually want to meet you halfway on that, but we're afraid to do it. And we've been afraid to do it for 40, 50 years. Um, I mean, I think that's where the huge opportunity is, is the people on the other side who've been wanting to make that deal, but don't know how to do it. And that's why like, you know, like, I, this also really affected me. I have a, I have a good friend who works for, um, she works for, you know, she works for MSNBC and NBC, at least Jordan. She also works part-time doing these focus groups. And she's from Mississippi. And after Parkland, she did a couple of them, one in Mississippi and the other one, I think, in Tennessee. And they then were breaking this down, this is 2018, to Trump voters on one day and, you know, or the other afternoon, whatever, non-Trump voters. So in all Trump voters were the, all the people in the room. And in both situations, Every single person in the room owned guns. They were hardcore, what you would think of as gun notes in fucking, you know, Mississippi, right? She said every single person in both groups wanted to do something. But then when they would start talking about specifics, people were like, oh, no, no, no. And like, they were afraid to do any specific thing or to trust the other side. They weren't ready to cut any deal, but they all wanted to do something. And, you know, it wasn't just talking, like, you know, Deep conversations like, yes, they don't know what deal they're willing to make that isn't going to screw them. And I mean, that's been going on for quite a long time that we're not getting the people on the other side want to make some deal, figuring out how to do it. It's almost like Arab Israeli, you know, peace accords. It's like, ah, they kind of want to do something, but they're sure you're going to just screw the hell out of them and they're going to lose in the end. And so they're not cutting some deal. I mean, it's not an exact analogy, but um in fact, that is a, like a zero-sum game, right? Like here, not necessarily. But I, I, I don't know. So that's where I see the biggest opportunity. That and finally, which is finally happening, of mobilizing the other side to keep the pressure on. Where, you know, the gun safety crowd actually has people voting for them um, and for their stuff. And, you know, I was surprised to see, you know, um, the last poll I saw last month, 10% of the people are still putting it as, um, you know, or again, putting it as their top need or their top voting issue, which, you know, pre-Parkland, that, that never happened. I guess uh, that's sort of a good uh, data point to put a flag in, and then, you know, we'll see how how well or poorly that translates when it comes to midterm time, and we can, like, revisit this conversation six or eight months from now, and if uh, if the if the balance of power has shifted politically away from doing more on guns, then, uh, then um, maybe... It'll be a, a good time to rekindle this. Well, I also want to see sort of like the next Congress after 15 Senate Republican senators stuff their neck out. And it's no surprise that only two are up for election this time. But that's fine. If like the safe people want to stick their neck out and like, like, OK, we're not going to get punished. And if no one gets punished, and I think there are only like 10 in the House, I forget the exact number, not many in the House. But if like nobody gets punished on the Republican side, like they defy the NRA and they don't get punished. And this bill, it's way less than I wanted, but way more than I was expected. I was shocked. In fact, I was on some you know, TV news shows saying like, oh, they're not going to come up with any bill. It's going to be totally bullshit, nothing. I was shocked. It's not a great bill, but like it was way more than I thought. And then like a, more, many more people that I thought went for it. So if no one gets punished, it'll be interesting to see a couple years down the road what's really happening with the Republican Party. They're like, okay, it's safe to start voting for this. And, you know, People who've been wanting to like vote for this stuff, if more of them come out of the woodwork once it's yeah, yeah. the and, water's you know, safe. It, it will be interesting if Mitch McConnell is majority leader again or Kevin McCarthy or whatever, that when these things have happened uh, in the last two years, 
year and a half, it's been you know up to basically Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer to say we're going to do something about it, and then up to Republicans to respond when Democrats can only apply pressure on the on the leaders of the party uh, of the on the leaders of the Congress to uh, to to respond to this or that gun massacre. Um, you know, Mitch McConnell will be thinking about the presidency. He'll be thinking about the Senate majority. And maybe it will actually be like harder for him to just say, nope, we're not going to have a legislative response to this at all. Obviously, like, I think it would be better if uh, <laughs> if uh, we never had to find out how Mitch McConnell and, and Kevin McCarthy would respond in those circumstances. But, um, but if we get there, um, I'd love to sort of have a part two to this. Revisit, sure. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah. All right. Um, Dave Cullen, thank you so much for being on Positively Dreadful. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for <laughs> hashing some of this out. It's tough not to crack, right? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Over the course of the week as we prepped and recorded this episode, a couple things happened. One is that House Democrats advanced legislation to ban assault rifles. That bill will probably clear the House soon, but I'm guessing we'll find out pretty quickly after that that it's a dead letter in the Senate. The other is that Democrats in Congress finally started responding creatively to the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade, including with the bill to protect same-sex marriages. And the difference between these two things is instructive. The Respect for Marriage Act got 47 Republican votes in the House. It stands a pretty good chance of becoming law. And the Republicans who voted no or intend to vote no are almost to a person making up excuses or whining about how it's a waste of time, about how the Supreme Court isn't going to avoid marriage equality the way they voided the right to abortion, blah, 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 blah. They may or may not be right about that. But everything about their posture, their lack of conviction, their annoyance, their baseless promises about what the court will or will not do, it all stems from the fact that they're scared. They don't want to admit they oppose same-sex marriage, and they don't want to admit that their hired guns on the Supreme Court might do something so extreme and bigoted. Saying any of that would be unpopular, but it's unpopular because the culture changed. The U.S. has become way less homophobic than it was, certainly when I was growing up. And that's reflected in media and in law and in how people think. And from where I sit, the path to more victories, things like an assault weapons ban, run through something similar happening with respect to gun culture in America. We're experiencing more mass shootings now than before and a surge in street-level gun crime in every kind of community in the country. Right-wing culture warriors are already out in front of that, quite dishonestly, to blame it on cities and liberal mayors and black people, and they're doing that because they know if they can fan a cultural panic about crime in America, like the one that gripped the country during the 70s, 80s, and 90s, which was a much more violent time, they can shape their political destiny. There's no reason Democrats can't join that fight, minus the lying part anyway. The politics website Axios ran a story a few days back about Democrats aligning with law enforcement here and there against Republican gun deregulation in a way that was common before Donald Trump claimed law enforcement for the far right. So it could be that we're headed for a long era of reactionary anti-crime policy, but it could also be that we're a few years away from Republicans alienating themselves from everyone but gun nuts, and then they'll have to either change 
or lose. Whichever path we end up on is kind of up to us. Positively Dreadful is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producer is Michael Martinez, and our associate producer is Olivia Martinez. Veronica Simonetti mixes and edits the show each week. Our theme music is by Vasily Fotopoulos. <laughs> <laughs>